John chapter 1. Last week we began our new series on the book of John. And uh, this week we continue on. We looked only at two verses last week. This week we're going to move it up a little bit. We're going to do three. So uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read from the book of John chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. Hear now the word of God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do just that. Our Lord and our God, would you open our eyes and ears to hear glorious things from your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how much you think about the second century of the church. Uh, Very recently, uh, Michael Kruger wrote a new book, and it was about the second century of the church. And I'm not sure how big of a seller it was uh, where it registered on the charts. But the reality is the second century is actually very important for the church and for us as Christians. I'm going to talk more about the second century. But during that time period, one of the things that happened was the emergence of this group known as the Gnostics. And the Gnosticism was... Uh, a movement that saw a lot in Christianity that it liked. It saw a lot of things that it thought that it overlapped with. And so what they did was they listened to the Christian message and they took things that they liked from Christianity and they mingled some of their own views in the midst of it. And so you had some groups starting to emerge, which eventually were understood to be cults in Christianity that took the things they liked from Christianity and mixed them with paganism and Gnosticism. And one of those beliefs that the Gnostics held to was this belief in something called dualism. And dualism said that the world that we live in is like a a big battle sphere. And in this big battle sphere, on the one hand, you have God. On the one hand, you have this pure being. And then on the other hand, you have this impure being. You have darkness. And as the Gnostics came to understand Christianity at least, or try to co-opt some things from Christianity, they said, this dark force that God is at battle with is none other than Satan. And so for the Gnostics, the world was in essence this big battle and this big battleground between two great and seemingly equal forces, God versus the devil. Who's going to win, God or the devil, the light side of the force or the dark side of the force? And you might think to yourself, well, this doesn't apply very much to me. I don't run into a whole lot of Gnostics. But, you know, if you actually went to Barnes & Noble and went to the religion section, you would find plenty of books with Gnosticism as the title. Uh, There are still people even today that take these views and they certainly uh, teach them and enjoy them. It's probably more widespread than you would think. Um, A while back... um, One of the deacons of the church and myself spent some time with a local man, and he told us in no uncertain terms that he knew this world was a battle between God and Satan. He said, if we don't pray, Satan is going to win. 
And he was convinced that one of his callings in this life was to pray so that God would win, so that Satan wouldn't win. And, and I was very grateful. Our deacon explained to him, well, the world isn't a battle between equals. You have God who is sovereign and up here, and you have Satan who is way down here, and Satan is fighting a losing battle, and we know that. But this man believes something that I think a lot of people do believe. Namely, the idea that this world is an even grudge match between two basically equal beings, and we as human beings find ourselves caught up in the middle of the battle, and we play some sort of cosmic role in deciding how things are going to go. And, and after I think about it, you know, I wish that I had said to this man, the world is not really a battleground, it is a stage. Shakespeare has this, this play, maybe you know Shakespeare, maybe you don't, but you probably heard something of this opening monologue from his play, As You Like It. And in the opening, this is what he says, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. And I think Shakespeare's illustration is better. It's not perfect, but it's better, because... The world really is a stage, but it isn't a stage for us. That's where Shakespeare is mistaken. It's not a stage that we stand on. At best, as human beings, we are like stage hands who are in the wings, and we can be replaced at a moment's notice. So the world is a stage created by, set up for, established by none other than God himself to show off God himself, and to show us his power and his light for all of creation to see. Now, don't get me wrong, there is warfare in this life. Spiritual warfare is real. Paul tells us in one of his letters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what I want you to notice from that is spiritual warfare is real, but notice who does the wrestling. We wrestle against this present darkness, but God does not. We wrestle against the forces of evil. God does not. Because for God, the fight is already over. So in, the, in a sense, this world is a stage that displays the glory and power and wisdom of God for all of us to see. But what I want us to see this morning is, is to notice something very important because I think it's exactly what John is doing. I want us to reflect upon what John, just what it is about the creation of the world that John says he would give so much attention to this, the creation, the idea of Jesus. And this morning we see Christ as the creator of life and light. That's what John presents Jesus to us for. So the stage is set. The star of the show is coming into the limelight. That's what these opening 11 verses of John are all about. As we slowly have this Savior unveiled by John for all of us to see more clearly. The question is, what do we see once we notice him, once we look at him in the text. Well, in the first verse this morning, verse 3, we see John move further into this idea that Jesus is the Word. That's what we saw last week. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is say, God, John is saying that Jesus really is God. And now he draws out the implications of that idea. He is God. 
and by extension, he is the creator. In verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. <clears throat> so John does two important things for us. First, he positively said the Son is the creator, not the created. He is not a part of creation. He stands apart from creation as God and being with God. And so before the incarnation, the son, what does he do? He is the expression of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is the image of God. He is the very word of God. And so uh, since God created the universe by speaking, let there be light. What John is saying about him is only fitting. The son is the one who spoke and light came forth. That was the first command of God that we see in scripture. And John identifies the speaking one as none other than the son himself. There were some in church history who denied this. The Arians said that Jesus was sort of a go-between, between God and the creation. This, the son was like a, a creature who was something like a tool in the hand of God, the same way that you would hold a hammer to build a birdhouse. The father used the son in that way. That's the way that the Arians saw this. There were also some groups within Judaism who said that, well, creation is beneath God, so it must have been the angels who created the world. But John says, no, Jesus Christ is God, and he created the angels didn't create. Think of what else John is telling us. He's telling us God is not a part of creation. He is not creation. He is not connected to creation. He is not a part of creation. He is separate from and distinct from creation. There are Eastern religions that think of, of God and they think of creation this way. Again, I mentioned the New Age section in the bookstore. If you go to the New Age section of the bookstore, you will find plenty of people teaching that you are God. And the reason the way the reason they think this is because they see creation as connected to God and because we are creatures and because we are a part of creation and God is part of creation then we are part of God. And so what God what John does is he protects us exactly from these sorts of errors. He puts up guardrails to protect us from drifting into these strange views because we don't get to say that. We don't get to say that we are a part of God, that God is a part of us, that God is a part of creation because he made all created things, but he is not the created things, nor is he a created thing. So John says the son created. This doesn't mean the other persons of the Trinity didn't create. Uh, remember, God has one essence. So everything that God does outside of himself is in some sense shared by all of the persons of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that the Father created. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? But if you look at Scripture, you see the Son is repeatedly spoken of as the Creator. You have our passage before us. But you also have Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created. Paul is very insistent. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. 
But then you also have the Spirit. You have the Spirit. And where do you see the Spirit working in creation? You see Him in the second verse of the Bible. It says, The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So for John to say that the Son created doesn't mean the Father didn't create. It doesn't mean that the Spirit didn't create. All three persons of the Trinity work together in all that God does. In fact, Augustine was very fond of saying, the stamp of all creation bears, all creation bears the stamp of the Trinity. That's how Augustine put it. He says, all creation bears the stamp of the Trinity. But still there's something special about the role of the Son, isn't there? The Bible calls Jesus something unique, something he doesn't call the Father or the Spirit. Listen to what Revelation says. He says Jesus is the origin of God's creation, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end of all things. So John highlights the Son's role here because his point is all about the Son. He's not necessarily commenting on the Father. He's not commenting on the Spirit. John's point here is very focused on Christ. And so John says that the Son is the creator, not the creation. That's the first thing he's saying here. The second thing that John does here is he makes very clear, not only is the Son not created, but he made everything that is created. Without him was not anything made that was made. So not only did the Son create all things, but just to be clear, there is nothing in the universe that he did not make. So like I used to play this game with my kids, you know, we would we would I would I would point at something and I would say, who made that? And the kids would say, God made that. Um, Or sometimes they would say somebody in a factory made that or or they would give an answer. But we would always go back to the question of, well, who made the thing that the guy in the factory used to make the thing? And eventually you'd get back to uh, cocoa beans in the wilderness somewhere that were planted there. Where did cocoa beans come from? And you have to get to the question of God did it. All of these things came from God. Even if a human being has their hand on it, it came from God. Not only did the Son create all things, but just to be clear, there is nothing in all of the universe that he did not make. And by the way, What this verse actually says, if you think through the logic of the verse, without him was not anything made that was made. I think we move right past that. We don't think it's terribly applicable. But this was an important verse for dealing with Arius and his followers in church history. Because as I said, the Arians believed that Jesus Christ was created and then he created for the Father. But you see, the Arians find themselves in a contradiction with a verse like this because this verse tells us that if Christ was a created being, then John is literally saying he created himself, which is impossible. There is no thing, there is no person that you can find in any corner of creation from the supernova that is one billion light years away to the black hole that scientists recently found and now have an image of. There is nothing in all of creation that was not created by the spoken voice, the word of God, Jesus Christ. Now at the beginning, though, we asked this sort of inciting question, is this world a battleground or is it a stage? 
And what we find here is more evidence that the answer is it's a stage. All of creation was made by the sun. There is nothing in all creation that the sun did not make and is not sovereign over. And that includes Satan. It includes the darkness that he mentions in verse 5. Even these things are not some out-of-control element in the universe that has God reeling on his heels. One of the frustrating things about paying attention to the news is you get to see a lot of terrible, awful, bad news. And if you're anything like me, you can't handle it oftentimes. And so you do just move away from it and say, I can't handle this. And the reality is nothing that happens in all of the universe leaves God reeling, confused, baffled, frustrated. The way R.C. Sproul has put it, and he's very fond of saying, if there is even one maverick molecule in the entire universe that's doing its own thing and is not under the sovereign control of God, then God is not God. And that includes the devil. Right? Even, the, even the greatest enemy of our souls ultimately must obey the command of our God. Luther was very fond of saying that it is true Satan is Fearsome, he is dangerous, he is the devil, but he is God's devil. And he he sits on a chain that is held by God himself. And so because of that, we as Christians ought not to fear him. Uh, Yes, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Yes, he seeks to destroy us if he is able. Yes, he is the father of lies and spreads them generously And yet he couldn't touch a hair of Job's head without the permission of God first. And he can do nothing to you that the Son of God hasn't already measured out the way that a doctor measures out medicine. We are not bystanders in the crossfire of a battlefield between God and Satan. We are minor part stage hands of the universe serving in a production that is totally under the direction and standing at the center of the stage is the director, God himself, using all of these events to just draw our gaze to him. Herman Bovink, reformed writer, Dutch reformed writer, says this, the whole world is the realization of an idea of God, a book containing letters, large and small, from which his wisdom can be known. He uses the illustration of a book, not a play, not a stage. But just as a book tells you what its author is like, so the stage of the world tells you what the director, Jesus Christ, is like. And here's the crucial point. Christ is the wisdom of God. And so when Christ entered into it, he became a display of God's wisdom in the truest and deepest sins. And so what John is doing, is he, he's doing these two things here. When he says that Christ is the Son, he created all things, he is exalting Jesus, and he's showing us that the battle between darkness and light in the big picture isn't even a real battle, it's a display and an unveiling of the character of God. There is simply no contest between God and the devil One little word will fell him, again to quote Luther. But John does something further, especially when it comes to exalting Jesus. And this is our second point this morning, life and light. 
Life and light, point two. He's already said that the Son created everything and he's shown us that the Son is not a creature and he's shown us that the Son made all things. But look at what he says to us in verse four. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John's not talking about physical life here. God doesn't have physical life in him because he isn't physical. John actually tells us what kind of life he's talking about here because he says the life that was in him was light. So we're not talking about physical life. We are talking here about spiritual life. Jesus Christ has spiritual life in him. So let's just think about what that means for our own day. Let's get practical here for a moment. I know this is a very preacher thing to say. Even as I wrote it, I said, no, no, I can't say this because this is a cliche to say this. Uh, But I'm going to say it and I'm going to ask you to not hear it as a cliche because I believe it. Uh, We are in a spiritual crisis. And when I say we, I'm specifically thinking of Western civilization. We are in a spiritual crisis. We can debate all day long about whether there was ever a good old days Back when everybody was a Christian and life was just perfect. I think that we tend to read the good old days that way because we lived through them and we survived them. Uh, But they didn't feel like the good old days when they were happening. And uh, I I think it's uh, not debatable, though, that there are fewer people than ever openly rejecting the Bible. That is just the reality of the day that we live in. I think it's borne out by polling and I think it's borne out by the general trajectory of our society. But here's the irony. The more people become secular, the more people uh, reject religion, the more desperate for spiritual things they actually become. And so what happens is people do reject Christianity. They reject uh, religious affiliation in some way. And they decide they don't particularly like Christianity, but they don't just go to nothing. People don't just abandon Christianity for nothingism. They don't just abandon Christianity to stop believing in anything, but rather they reject Christianity and they they don't just become unspiritual. Instead, they take that hunger for spiritual things and they, they divert it to other pursuits. Paganism, pantheism, Wicca. In modern secular Europe, just look at what happens at Stonehenge every year when the winter solstice happens. Just look at the sort of crowds that form in these places. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my family, we were on vacation. We were in Portland, which is a deeply secular city. I think I could say it's the most secular city I've ever been in. And there were very few churches. Those churches that were there looked like they had become more like civic centers where people give lectures on social justice and things like that. Um, but here's what I noticed. Very few churches Palm reading shops, out the wazoo, right? Uh, Tarot card readers, crystal shops, so many crystal shops. You could just buy crystals and on and on and on. And here's what I just find so ironic is that in an age where people start to think of themselves as more sophisticated, more scientific, more reasonable, you have grown adults going into shops and buying crystals, See, what do they do? What happens when you reject Christianity? They adopt a spiritual worldview and they, they don't know what they want. 
They, they decide that maybe they're going to start thinking of things as being like God. And so they follow the new age path and they decide I'm going to be spiritual in a way that nobody else can tell me how to be. Or maybe they say, well, I remember what I was taught when I was young, but I didn't like all the backwards ways that the Bible was. So I'm just going to create my own version of Christianity and follow my own intuition, my own idea of right and wrong. They start to reach around themselves and they start to look for something spiritual, something that can sort of scratch that itch that they have because it's born within all of us. But what I, I think the moment that we're in right now, this is, this is sort of my illustration of what's going on. It's kind of like when you forget to buy the right things at the grocery store. You don't buy vegetables, you don't buy meat, you don't buy fruit. And instead you buy Peeps and Lucky Charms and Cheetos, right? And then you go to the cabinet one day and you say, man, I am so hungry. And any other reasonable day of the week, you would have said, this is a terrible idea. I can't just sit here and eat an entire bag of Cheetos. (laughs) Peeps, they're not even legally considered food. I'm not going to put those in my mouth. And yet you do. Why? Because you're hungry. You will eat bizarre things when you are really hungry. And what the world has done and what the culture has done is they've cut themselves off from the real food. They've cut themselves off from Christianity. That's not reasonable enough. That doesn't give me the conclusions that I like. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so because they have no options left, what do they do? The world goes to the cabinet and starts eating the peeps, which is always a mistake. This is the spiritual crisis of our nation. This is the spiritual crisis we are experiencing right now. We are eating spiritual peeps. Last week, there were multiple mass shootings in our country. And I am not saying that the shooters were atheists, but I suspect one of them may have been. But even if if they were a generically God-believing individual, is it any coincidence that we live in this time of unprecedented emotional and spiritual turmoil in this country where traditional Christianity has been pushed aside and has been set aside? Is it any coincidence that there is an increase in these shootings, an increase in vile public evil, more people shot in public than ever before in terms of mass shootings, people maimed for the rest of their lives? Is it any coincidence that we are more sophisticated and secular and religion rejecting than we've ever been before and we become increasingly evil in the way that we treat our fellow man? Is that a coincidence? It cannot be. These are symptoms of a spiritual sickness and a spiritual crisis that we can barely conceive of. And I would suggest this, what we need is real spiritual food. And we as a culture are just Christ haunted enough as a society that people don't know what they want, but they know what they don't want. And the crazy thing is, the thing they don't want is exactly what they're starving for. They need Jesus. I know that sounds like a very simplistic preacher type of an answer, but the reality is it doesn't have to be complicated. In him was life, says John. In him was life, and now we are a culture of death. Let's just appreciate this for a moment. We live in a time of darkness. We live in a time of confusion. We live in a day when people are more confused about themselves and their own purpose than they have ever been. 
The last time I suspect that a culture was this confused would have been during the second century when Christianity was not yet ascendant yet. Christianity hadn't become a cultural force that it became later. It was just a faithful presence that wasn't obsessed with worldly power yet. And our our calling is not to amass worldly influence or worldly power. Our mission isn't to get as many people in high places onto our side as possible. Our mission is to be faithful. And by the way, I do think that the second century of the church is our model for how we should live as Christians in our culture and how we should train our children to think of themselves living in the culture. We are not conquerors. We are the humble resistance. We are the church. We have no cultural authority around us. We are strangers in a strange land. Right? We are visitors in Babylon, where we are surrounded by confused and contradictory ideas on every side. Think of it like this. We are like the people in the desert who know where the water is. And everyone else around us is just living off of energy drinks. We know where the life is, but and we know that these cheap substitutes are going to kill them. So how do we love our neighbors? Do we love our neighbors by saying, hey, those energy drinks are fine. You're going to be great. Yeah, that's just the way you want to do life. That's fine. Is that really loving? The way we love our neighbors and the way we love those around us is not to become like them and say, yeah, who needs water anyway? That is so much the temptation. It hurts to be an outsider. It's, it feels great to belong and it feels great to be praised and to have the crowd love us. But that is selfish of us. That isn't love. Love looks like this. To hold out the light that John talks about here, even if it hurts us. Even if people shame us and speak ill of us and speak badly of us. That's real love. Even if the world tells us that what we're doing looks like hate to them, we need to understand they are the delusional ones. They're drunk on energy drinks. They're wrong. Now I just said, what should we do? What does love look like? It looks like to hold out the light. And that's in danger of being a cliche, right? (laughs) Uh, Hold out the light. Share the light. Those are the sorts of cliches that I don't think... Personally, as someone sitting in a congregation, I find those phrases terribly helpful. So maybe we ask this question, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold out the light? That just sounds like a song or something. What does it mean, though? Holding out the light of the world looks like this. It means giving them what they're starving for. It means actually telling people about Jesus. It means that we don't chicken out. When, and it means we don't become like the culture. It means that we keep our identity as God's people. So what we do is we set Jesus before them and we let them know, here is life. Here is light. This is the one you need to know and who makes all of life truly come together in the way that you were made to understand. Jesus himself is the light. So when we, when we hold out Jesus, we're holding out the light. If you ever struggle with how to talk to unbelievers, how to uh, witness to people, if you want to use that phrase, if you find that phrase helpful, what I want to say is this. Do something simple. Bring it around to Jesus. Um, Talking about God in a generic way is not helpful. Not in this culture because people are broadly religious or they're broadly spiritual and they're not threatened at all by the idea of God. 
Secular people are happy to talk about God. They want to be spiritual but not religious. But when you talk about Jesus, what you're doing is you're actually showing them the medicine that they hate the taste of. You know, it's almost like vampires and garlic. You know, uh, you, you want to talk about God, they're fine. You pull out Jesus and talk about him, it's, I don't like Jesus. And here's what's important, though. As quickly as possible, this is my advice. Bring it around to Jesus because to know Jesus is to know the life and to know the light that we're talking about. All right. All this stuff, the darkness that has not overcome Jesus, all of it is ignorance of Jesus. So we we need to bring it around because John tells us he stands at the center of the stage. He is the one who's at the center of all history. He's the purpose for which all of this was made. And he's the reason why we were made. Anything else will leave us starving and it will leave our neighbors starving. They are already starving. He made all of life. He has all of life in him. He has all of light within him. He is the reason that is all here and telling others about him is the reason why we are in this world. It is why you are breathing right now. It's why you are alive. The reason you are here today is so you can be equipped to go out tomorrow and actually share the thing that you were equipped to share today. From beginning to end, alpha to omega, top to bottom, this is the mission we've been given to hold out the light, to hold out Christ to the world around us. And John gives us one last burst of joy. He gives us one last reason for optimism because if you look at the world around yourself and you say, I am more pessimistic than I was this time last year. Or if you look at the world around you and you say, I think things are getting worse and they're going to keep getting worse. I want you to hear this. He tells us why we shouldn't despair and why we shouldn't shrink back. And the answer is this. Christ has come. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not only is he the creator but he is the creator who entered into creation. He is the director who became part of his own play. He stepped onto the stage and shined the light on himself into our fallen world. And what does John say? He says, the darkness has not overcome it. There is no cause for pessimism. There is no reason to lose heart. John says, the darkness has not overcome it. There is no contest. There is no question. There is no debate. Jesus is the light. And he will win. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Our Father, you sent your very own Son into the world because you knew what we needed most. We didn't need a pep talk. We didn't need a a new system of morality. We didn't need a, a club to belong to or a new idea to debate. More than anything else, you knew that we needed Jesus. And so he came and he shone his light for us so that we would have our greatest need met in you. To have our sins forgiven. To have a purpose from you given to us And to know life itself, to know your son, the one who made us and loved us 
and gave his very life for us. Would you make us a people who do not fold, who do not capitulate, and who do not wimp out in the face of the pressures that the world can so often lay on us? But more than anything else, give us Jesus. We ask it in his very name. Amen.